This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Feeling good, feeling great. I feel be- better than yesterday. Better than yesterday. That's all you can hope for. Mm-hmm. I have no follow-up information. <laughs> That's fine. I don't. We're not in the open yet. Apparently, oh, I couldn't tell. You were talking like we were. Well, I did. I sent my I sent my line out in the water. I didn't catch anything. So we're gonna. Okay. So that's instructive because we're gonna be in the Philly Improv Theater on this Saturday, this coming Saturday, June 23rd at 1.30 p.m. Correct. Doing a show about Redwall. Yes. And because it's an improv theater, we have to know how to yes and each other. Great. Are you so, just stealing our open from six days from now? Are you like thieving from the future right now? Or are I, you trying to know. train me? Train me up. Train me up, daddy. Yeah, oof, yes. And this is overdue. A podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. Yes, and my name is Andrew. <laughs> no, but my name is Craig. Wait. No buts. No buts. Um, so yeah, as Andrew said, you can come see us uh, if you are listening to this podcast in real time or the closest option that you have thereof. Um, you can see us Saturday, June 23rd, 1.30 p.m. at the Philly Podfest. We'll be at the Philly Improv Theater Go to bit.ly slash overdue2018 to buy your tickets. Um, Andrew has a show at noon with uh, appointment television that Mm -hmm. I think they have, what, ATV Philly, bit.ly, ATV Philly? Yeah, bit.ly slash ATV Philly, all lowercase, all one word. Great. Uh, Come see us. Come hang out. It'll be a fun time. I'm going to talk about Redwall. We're going to improv yeah, let's, our way let's through Let us know on, on them Twitters and them Facebooks if you're coming so we know what to plan for. Also, we wanted to... Because I really have no information at all about how many people are coming. Yeah, no clue. No clue. Um, <laughs> it's going to be fun anyway. Anyway, I read another book. I got, I'm doing a lot of reading these days because... Yeah, so on this on this podcast, one of every week, one of us reads a book and tells the other one about it. A book they've never read before. Correct. And I have never before read the book Mistborn, The Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson. And and you've never read anything by Brandon Sanderson before, right? Yeah. Don't accuse. Don't say it like you're accusing me. I'm not. I'm trying to get I'm trying to get additional information. from you. Sure. Squeeze the witness. I have never read anything by Brandon Sanderson. I don't know who he is. I've never met him. A likely story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks to Jake and Kelsey. Uh, to our Patreon supporters who recommended this book for the show. Um, what do you know about Brandon Sanderson? Cop? Um, you cop. <laughs> if you know anything about Brandon Sanderson, you have to tell me, this, or it's entrapment. <laughs> um, so Brandon Sanderson was born in 1975, and he's a super, 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 super prolific sci-fi fantasy author. Yeah, man! He's wicked prolific. So I checked... Um, Wikipedia is like the structure of his bibliography page is a separate page from his regular page and it's laid out totally differently. 
Whoa. because it has to or it like organizes everything into like the fictional universe that it takes place in. Did you s- <laughs> or like the series of books that it takes Did place in. Did you see that the Wikipedia page for the Mistborn series in the table of books also includes how long they are and how many chapters are in them? Yeah, the Wheel of Time uh, Wikipedia page has um, pages in both paperback and hardback and then number of words, which is wild. (laughs) Um, But according to the Coppermind, which is a reference I don't understand, but it is the name of the Brandon Sanderson wiki. Yes. Dude has published between one and three novels and a ton of short stories and novelettes and novellas. I don't know what the difference is and anthologies and all kinds of other stuff. But between one and three novels a year between 2005 and now. And that's and he's got announced like that many announced works in 2018 and into 2019 as well so i read that he teaches once a year a creative writing course at brigham young university (laughs) i i don't want to cast aspersions on mr sanderson but i have to believe that your story better be pretty good for him to actually pay attention if he's doing this much writing I thought you were going to, yes, and maybe he is stealing the souls of young writers yes. to help himself write more because he writes Ursula the lot. Sea Witch situation where a lot. people yeah. leave unable to write and he has claimed their stories. And he has got their their writing ability in like a clam that he wears around his <laughs> neck or whatever it is. Uh, I did. There's not too much on him because his main claim to fame is that he is a commercially successful, prolific Sci-fi fantasy writer, right? Yeah. Um, right. He did attend Brigham Young, Brigham Young University for undergrad and graduate. Took a leave to go work for the Mormon Church in South Korea. Came back and switched from biochem to English lit, like you do. Yeah, right. Those there's a lot of overlap, so it's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, and he had written like six or seven books. While he was still in school. Yeah. So by 2003, he has written 12 unpublished novels. What? And then of one of those becomes um, uh, Elantris, I think is the name of it. His first published book. Yes. Um, that was published by Tor Books in 2005. And then the first Mistborn book, which is the one you read, um, came out shortly after. So the the I am... I've not read... A lot of Brandon Sanderson, but I was introduced to him the way I think a lot of people were probably introduced to him um, because in 2007, when uh, the author Robert Jordan died, he's the author of the Wheel of Time series. He died with that with that super, super long series of books, super long and super popular series of books unfinished. Um, His wife, who was his editor for for most of the run of the books and and along with an assistant, I think helped him keep track of continuity and stuff. Like she was super steeped in the, in the world almost as much as he was. Sure. Um, but she, uh, that her name is Harriet McDougal. She was so impressed with the first Mistborn book huh. that she gave this, this guy who was, you know, he, he had had a good start, but he hadn't written a lot of He's stuff like yet. In his late twenties at that point. Like, yeah. And, and, or like just barely 30. Yeah. And, and she says, Hey, you, I'm so impressed with the way that you wrote this book that I want you to finish my husband's sprawling fantasy series <laughs> that has a very intricate magic system and a million characters. And I don't know, like at the time that that happened, um, 
he had been working on what he thought was would be the last book. And and like a lot of fantasy series, he um I mean, it's kind of like Game of Thrones, but I was always convinced that Robert Jordan was actually working on the books. And with, whereas with George it, Yeah. With, and and still liked the books and the universe <laughs> and everything. Whereas with George R. R. Martin, like if, if he could if he could somehow be just wash his hands of the entire enterprise at this point, I feel like he would. Well, and um, also the Wheel of Time series is just way longer even than Game of Thrones, right? Like there's just more of it. Yeah, so um by the when he died, the eleventh book had come out. It was originally gonna be three, I think, and then six, and then <laughs> Like it just kept climbing and climbing till it was going to be 12. And he says, okay, this, this 12th book is going to be the last one, even if it's 2000 pages long. Then he gets um, diagnosed with a terminal illness, I believe some kind of um, heart disease. And he says, you know, I'm going to try my best to finish it. But in the event that I can't, I'm going to get my notes in order so somebody can come along and finish it the way I want it to be finished. And um, that, that person was Brandon Sanderson. And he did pretty good job. I think there are, just like on a personal note, I guess for you, Wheel of Time fans out there, um, I feel like he didn't quite nail like some of the voices of of some of the characters, but all in all, did a pretty good job with it. And then, um, yeah, I think that really elevated, yes, his his fame because those were all every single time one of those books came out after a certain point, they were all number one New York Times bestsellers. Yeah, 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 yeah. So then, so, so it was a huge platform. For so him. then he has, you know, the Mistborn books, which are currently, it's like the original trilogy of them. There's another trilogy within a fourth book that came out. There's a companion book. It's been rolled into his larger Cosmere universe. Which I'm glad you said Cosmere because I could only think of Kovfefe. <laughs> C-O-S-M-E-R-E, um, <laughs> which seems like uh, he's approaching it. A little bit more deliberately than someone like Terry Pratchett, but it does seem to have a like. Here is a a a generic like a general umbrella mythology that explains why there are multiple worlds that might function different ways, and I can put Easter eggs in all my books to tie them together, and you can read any of them at any time, so that you don't have to read forty books in order. Um, yeah, it's gotta be it's gotta be frustrating because I feel like what does bog down your Robert Jordans or your George R. R. Martins is you get to a point where the world you've built is so intricate that you, even as its originator, you as one person cannot hopefully cannot like possibly hope to understand it as well as the giant mob of people who are picking it apart every single day yeah, on Reddit or whatever. I seem to recall. And I think, I think that just, it becomes maybe a little paralyzing and a little intimidating. I seem to recall at one point, the gender of a horse switched between Game of Thrones books. And like someone had to point it out to George R. R. Martin and he had to hire someone to keep track of all the stuff in his books. Like yeah, it's so stuff like, like that <laughs> where like and it's not it not didn't switch on purpose. Like he just forgot about what a horse was in his own mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's just like, how do you keep it easy breezy cover girl enough <laughs> that do, it's still like fun to do yes. while also maintaining enough continuity and consistency to keep people invested in the in the universe. And some of that then leads to Sanderson announcing what he's called, and this is now like 10 years ago, um, the Stormlight Archive, which he said is going to be a 10-book series, which to me, just like announcing that out the gate is a little risky, Mr. Finish the Wheel of Time, because the Wheel of Time <laughs> guy couldn't finish it. But 
he he i think you're right the way you approach something like the cosmere where it's like i can write whichever book i want to next without it needing to be the exact follow-up to the last book is like very attractive i'm just i'm curious to see i mean it'll be a while but i think the rule of like planned runs of any books is the the actual length of the thing ends up being at least n plus two (laughs) like probably more yeah um, and one thing between I w- between n plus two and n times two. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah. The, the as as written by Sanderson, the last book of the Wheel of Time series ended up being three books. <laughs> okay, lady, you you hire me to fuck to write one book, and she's like, "Well, it's got to be three. Break it up, buddy." I, I yeah. I I think it was just. I'm not sure how it worked. Like I don't I don't remember. Because whose call been, it was yeah yeah but like, it may have just been like a physical publishing thing i like, bet you can't yeah. like you can't send a cinder block shaped <laughs> book out to like your walden books is across the nation and hope that it's gonna sell well maybe that's why walden books is gone yeah they stopped Somebody selling just dropped books. a dropped a crate of wheel of times and it just fell through the floor and that was it well, pour one out for walden books we're gonna take a quick break walter and walden books come back and talk about miss Bourne. Okay, bye. Craig, do you see? What? what? In the, it's in the look into the mists. What's or out something, there? Something's coming out, emerging from the mists. It looks it's like being, a web. It's it's being born from the mists. Oh, it's oh, it's just Squarespace. Oh, hi, Squarespace. Hey, you know them. You love them. It's that website that helps you website. Yep, that's my <laughs> Squarespace, the website I know and love for making websites. Craig, tell me some of the things that you can do with a Squarespace. I can tell you that Squarespaces can help you turn your cool idea into a website. They can help you showcase your work, promote your physical or online business, or announce an upcoming event, like our live show on June Ooh. 23rd in Philadelphia. Ooh. Ooh. Um, there's a note about that on our Squarespace website. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's and, just an ad within an ad. Andrew, how does Squarespace help you do this? Well, I can tell you that they do it by giving you beautiful templates created by world-class designers, giving you powerful e-commerce functionality, and letting you customize the look, feel, the look and feel of your website, the settings and products on it, and more with just a few clicks. Everything is optimized for desktop and mobile right out of the box. And uh, you get to, there's nothing in a patch or upgrade ever. You don't need to dig around in any code. Don't worry about it. Someone else will do it. Someone else will do it. Just head. And if, and if somebody else isn't doing it, they got that 24-7 award-winning customer support. That's true. So to help you out. To, uh, if you need helping with the websites, head to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Make that website you know you want to. Yeah, squarespace.com slash overdue. Make a website. Andrew, let's start. My right. my first Tell me about our buddy Brando Sando and his book Mistborn. My first note for Brando Sando's <clears throat> Mistbos says <laughs> So where to start? <laughs> Well, that seems that's helpful. It's a big old book. I've been reading it for a while now, and I had a good time in there, but I might have gotten lost in the mists. Um, uh, do you? 
can you help me kick us off? So I had like based on my personal experience with Brandon Sanderson, I had like so so this guy he writes this Mistborn book. It's like his second book ever. And then Harriet McDougal comes along and says, Hey, my husband has this massively popular, <laughs> hugely intricate, like intricate magic system, big old built out world, sure. lots of different characters with distinctive voices. Yeah. What in Mistborn Ooh. do you think convinces that person to be like, you, Brandon Sanderson, you're the right person to bring this all together? Like what what of those elements do you want to start oh, with? Oh man, that's a great big question. Good job, Andrew. Thanks. Um so this book, what I I'll give you some macro level like what I was impressed by. Or, or at least, like, I will remember if someone's like, hey, did you ever record a podcast about Mistborn? And I'll be like, here are some of the things I probably said. Now get out of my house. <laughs> my house, podcast fan. Um, <laughs> the magic system is incredibly, uh, I want to say intricate, but not in a, like, you need to know the words from the scrolls way. But the magic system in this universe the primary one you you learn of in mistborn is referred to as allomancy which is a manipulation of metals of lotions lotions it's very soft <laughs> magic in this book um it has to do with um specific metals that you can then like digest in your body to do magic stuff um i'll talk a little bit more so you got like eat a you got eat some Aluminum, and cast, sort cast of. Magic. Okay, let's just get into it. Let's bust <laughs> okay. this open. So, um, we learn about Alamancy. Uh, it gets hinted to us in the prologue when one of our main characters, Kelsier, um, rolls up at this plantation where a nobleman named Lord Tresting is like watching over his peasants, referred to throughout the book as the ska, um, not the <laughs> genre of music. Ba, 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 ba. It's there are few ba, ba, there, ba, da, ba, da. there are sorry fewer boss tones than you would like in this book, and they are not as mighty as you might expect. Um, that is unfortunate. Ska with two A's, so you know that it's a fantasy book. Um, <laughs> yeah, tell me, like, not to interrupt you, but how overwhelming was the was the name miasma that he throws at you in like the first chapter? Like, how disconcerting is it to dive into this? Not world? that bad, actually. It doesn't okay, get cool, too cool, bad cool. until the latter half of the book, actually. Um, right. And the Wikipedia gave me a headache, but the book was mostly fine. Um, so, in the first prologue, the prologue chapter, you meet Kelsier. You learn that he is a ska with some superpowers, and he has gone to this plantation to stir up trouble. He's going to use his allomancy to do it. You don't really get a clear picture of what it is, just that he burns tin at one point in his body, which okay. means that he has a reserve of the metal tin that allows him to have like super senses so he can like see and hear and feel uh, like better than usual. Right, so is the tin energy, is it? Is it like a... Like a time, like if you have a certain amount of tin, you can do the stuff for like a certain amount of time, Correct. or is it like a bar that that is spent based on how much you use it? Uh, both. So you burn it, but you can flare it and get like boosts the, of it. Hit the nas. Yeah, you can hit the nas on your tin, and then you might be able to hear like further or better, but it'll use up the tin faster. 
Um, and that applies to how all of the metals work. Boy, this is a magic system designed by somebody who played a lot of PlayStation 2 yeah, games. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine you have eight different pools of magic points. Think about it mm-hmm. that way. Uh-huh. Um, so he has tin, and then he we wake up the next morning, and uh, the lord of the plantation is dead, and all of the now freed ska who are like, oh man, our, our, that guy was trying to rape a woman, and then the the magic man came and killed him and now we don't have anyone to work for and they're like man we didn't really want to rebel but now we have nothing to now he destroyed our home so i guess we have to go join the rebellion and that's like the opening intro to kelsier who is this like it's like han solo and goku like wrapped up together i guess (laughs) like he is sort of a reluctant hero but he is the hero and he also and he has can superpowers. go super saiyan yeah um and so then we meet a i'm, I'm gonna <laughs> on, get <laughs> on solo and goku someone draw some some super saiyan solo what? art yeah like where is this? can i get like a deviant art <laughs> full of goku han solo slash please oh man i'm just imagining various like versions of han solo going super saiyan when princess leia tells him he tells her he loves him that's all i'm thinking um all right so as you you're going to explain more of this stuff to me book put a bookmark in a discussion about women because i want to talk about yes how they how they are treated in this book because there's like a range of how bad these dudes are about women Great. sometimes so I don't know. the other main character is a young woman a teenage woman vin who is a uh like a thief she's a street urchin she's running with this thieving crew in the main city of the story luthadel and she uh her brother like left her there her brother uh like beat her up all the time was really bad to her um, and then, like, just skipped town and never came back. And so she doesn't trust anyone. Um, she knows that she was born to a like by a nobleman having sex with her mom, but then her mom tried to kill her, and so she doesn't really have parents. Um, so she has like a little bit of a special power that she initially refers to as luck, where she can um, soothe your emotions, which she mostly uses to uh like if someone's gonna beat her up or if she's gonna get like caught while she's trying like working a job um because everyone's working oceans 11 jobs in this book um she can like soothe your fear or soothe your anger and she spends a little bit of her luck and then she like that person calms down and she can take control of the situation or someone else can take control of the situation um after her crew gets caught when a job goes bad, uh, Kelsier shows up. I think this is a couple years after the prologue, and he like takes he disbands the crew. Like he is like, "You guys attracted too much attention. Um, get rid of your leader. I'm going to hire you for something else." And then he personally recruits Vin because he knows that she can do allomancy. So what she was doing without even knowing it was she was burning zinc. So. This is all setting up to allomancy as it is known in the book is that there are eight metals that you just can have in your body. Um, and if you have this special ability, if you are a mistborn, you can use all eight metals and mistborn are pretty rare. Or if you are a misting is the term they use. That's someone, 
who can just use one of the medals. And then there are a bunch of like cool nicknames for those people who are like if, who can only use this is like Zinkos and <laughs> Tin Boys and uh, Tin Eyes. They refer to as Tin Eyes uh-huh. um, because they can see stuff real good. Uh, Pewter allows you to get real tough, so they're just called thugs. Um, well, iron and beauties. Iron and steel allow you to pull or push off of metal. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember what the it's like steel push coin shots is the one. And then I don't remember what the other one is. Uh, I'm going to get into why everybody fights with money in this book. It's pretty dope. Um, <laughs> zinc and brass, uh, you can soothe people or you can riot people, which is like flare certain people's emotions. Um, and then copper and bronze allow you to either hide or reveal uh, or like sense people using allomancy magic. So I've talked about them the, in the these. Co- the copper boppers. The copper boppers. The yes. bronze bronze well like, it's you know b-r-o-n-z-e-b-r-a-w-n-s i love expansion hockey teams um <laughs> the the coppers are called smokers i think because they can like lay down a smoke screen and bronze but are they jokers and midnight tokers <laughs> remains to be seen i have are. not read all of the books <laughs> okay. uh and the bronze ones i think they're called seekers because they can find elements because it's their job to find the golden snitch yes sort of so i have talked about these eight medals in pairs for a reason the, and the book explains this over time um because Kelsier is like, he can use all eight. He is a Mistborn. He's super special. He's very powerful. Um, we discover that Vin is also a Mistborn. And so over the course of the book, he is teaching her how to use these different powers. He is explaining the system to her because there's not like a school that you go to to learn this. There's no um, Hogwarts. No, because uh, the people who are supposed to be able to use this type of magic are just in the nobility. And the nobility are are like an upper caste that oppress the ska. And the nobility also are all very tightly controlled by the Lord Ruler, who is the hero of legend and now your tyrant god king. Um, so, okay, so real quick. Yeah. You say, you say Mistborn and Misting. Is there a... Um... Like is are these abilities innate? Can they be like trained up in anybody? Like how do they They are genetic. Um so there's a whole big thing in this book about the how and if the ska and noble people are actually different, like as a species. Um in a way that gets at like it bumps up against kind of real world junk science that is used to like provide scientific justification for oppression and slavery and stuff like that where it's Mm -hmm. like oh they're they've always been worse than us they've always been smaller and weaker than us so clearly they can't be the same as us kind of thing and what this story overall unpacks are the ways in which like specific people have kept folks down or uh like lifted others up but on the whole the allomancy thing is it's a genetic trait that nobles will have sex with ska that they own or or that they meet in the street and then they're supposed to just kill them so that they don't have mistborn kids because then the mistborn kids can like rise up and like maybe lead a rebellion so like don't don't if you have magic powers, Andrew, and you are a noble person who's supposed to keep things on the up and up, 
Like, don't just go make babies with s- s- strangers. Yeah, it's like it's a controlled eugenics-y yes. sort of there's situation. A, yeah, there's okay. some other eugenics-y stuff with another race called the Terracemen, who are also have magical powers that are not allomancy, and they... Uh, are not allowed to breed on their own. They're they're how many magic is... how many magic systems you need? I feel like one is enough for um, any given fantasy series. This okay, so Alamancy is the main one. Um and the other one that we meet in this book but is like pretty confined to like two characters is called Farukami. Uh no. Yeah. I refuse I refuse <laughs> to do that to you. <laughs> Fer- Ferukemi. Um it is the exact opposite of how allomancy works. So allomancy works by like you ingest metal. Now you can ingest it by literally drinking a vial of metals into you, um, <laughs> and this happens a lot. Like they get specially prepared because if you if your uh, tin alloy or your pewter alloy isn't the right like mixture, you could get sick. So you have to get the good mm-hmm. pewter. In your bones. So I can't just go to like the Dwayne Reed and get no no some no over no. the counter like you iron pills. Can't get some off brand. Pu- Actually, that might not be bad because if it's really pure, that could be good for you. But like the alloys, they need to be mixed correctly. Anyway, um, so those are in your body, and you can like burn them. That's the verb that they use all the time, and that will deplete your stores and it allows you to affect the outside world. Farukami, as it is is explained. The Terrace, which is this race that's been subjugated, they are now like mostly a servant class, but they also store a bunch of like cultural knowledge and, and records of events through Farukami and other magics. And Farukami allows you to take um, a memory or a, like, for lack of a better word, a stat that you have, <laughs> um, like strength or wisdom or constitution, and you mm-hmm. can store it in metal. So, um, historically, the terrace would have, like, bracelets and beads and things, and you could, like, you could sap your strength for a couple days, and then it would all go into, like, a bead, and then you could draw that strength out of it for, like, a couple hours and be superhuman. Okay. Um, So, over the course of the book, it is revealed that the Lord Ruler, who has, like, ruled over this... Uh, this world for actually like a thousand years um, does have command over both of those forms of magic, even though Farukami is is not really un- well understood among the general populace. But that's that's not supposed to be allowed. No, it is not supposed. And he is he is the one who is like keeping it from being allowed. Oh, so. well, 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 well. Um, so here's I have a little section in my notes that says, "Why does this not just feel like most video game nonsense?" Um, I, doesn't it does it not um <laughs> i can't tell if it knots i think it <laughs> knots because there are a couple moments in each like so she has a vignette vin does um <laughs> uh, uh-huh. she gets a vignette with each of the main characters in kelsier's crew um which i mentioned oceans 11 kind of as a joke but it is really apt as a comparison actually um where he has a crew of thieves that are each misting, so they can each do one of these types of magic. And she studies with each of them, like, separately uh, through one, like, part of the long story. And it plays into how these guys, like, view the world or their role in life. So it's, like, 
as a system described on paper, you can be like, man, I could play a real fun RPG with this. Um, <laughs> but when you actually meet the characters, it it shapes out what might be an archetype. Like, oh, Breeze. So that I want to introduce you to this crew because this crew is kind of neat. Um, Breeze is the soother who I like liken to Brad Pitt because why not? Um, he's very smooth. He's just always eating. And what he can, he is always asking people to get him wine. And he can do it because he can soothe their emotions and kind of make them want to. So then when she's talking to Breeze about how soothing works, um, he says, Life as a human being is about posturing and influence. This isn't a bad thing. In fact, we depend upon it. These interactions teach us how to respond to others. And then he goes on to say that it's all about understanding people. You have to read how someone is feeling, change that feeling by nudging it in the proper direction, then channel their newfound emotional state to your advantage. And I picked those because, like, he's not even really talking about magic at this point. He's just talking about how to make friends and influence people. <laughs> and he happened, He acknowledges that he has a magical leg up in this. Um and it does raise some questions, and Vin has these internally when she's having conversations with him, where she's like, am I doing this because he wants me to? Am I doing this because I think he's trying to soothe me, and that's why I want to do it, or I'll just do it anyway? It like gets into some causality of human behavior stuff that's a hmm. little mushy and kind of neat. Now I'm just thinking of different roving bands of like magical users who like the the Chefton of each one has read a different self help book. So there's oh, the yeah. How to Make Friends and Influence People Tribe. There's like the Who Moved My Cheese <laughs> gang. Well, uh Hammond who's there's the the radical honesty book oh, or whatever yes. it is. Oh, yeah, I like, like that. that. That tribe, that tribe is is hard to be around. Yeah, that's very true. Um, very radically honest. Hammond is the thug. He's he's the guy who burns pewter all the time, and everything is you know he he's a little philosophical. He's the one at one point who's like maybe the ska. If I I mean I thought about it real hard, and maybe we are supposed to be subjugated. We are just different because stuff for him is a little simpler, even when he's asking big questions about it. Um, clubs, which is a great name is the smoker who can he has he runs the hideout so everybody goes to his house and he can like keep them safe by making sure no one knows that they're doing magic there um the other thing i like about the setup of the crew is that they all have like apprentices that you that aren't real characters but like breeze has a group of soothers that he can use on someone or okay. like use on a party um which is kind of neat um there's a guy spook is the tin eye that we meet and he can he can see stuff um marsh is kelsier's brother who is a seeker which means he can track down allomancy and he teaches uh he teaches vin that there's a little bit more to allomancy than some people even think about how you can feel and detect it um which serves her throughout the rest of the book um so we meet these guys when after vin has been recruited and kelsier lays out like in total actual George Clooney, like I'm standing in front of a chalkboard explaining the job to you style. Uh, and here's the job, Andrew. So wait, before you okay. get started. So, okay. How many character, like, does it do the typical fantasy thing where we get like a bunch of POV characters mm -mm. or is it just kind of mostly one? We person? get what I was most impressed by and, or actually it's surprised by given my knowledge that he had come, that he had like been picked for wheel of time. Right. Right. Is mm -hmm. that we spend almost the entire book 
with Vin and Kelsier. Mostly with Vin, which is useful because she is the one learning the most about the world. So you have that kind of fish out of water thing going on. Uh Um, But we spend a lot of time with Kelsier also. At the end of the book, we get maybe two or three other characters' perspectives for like a chapter. Okay. Um, that is that is broadly how the first Wheel of Time book is actually structured. Huh, is you okay. get it through mostly through one person, and then as the books continue, it it expands and expands. So that was my first question, and my second was like how it sounds like there are just a lot of people. Like how fleshed out, like how distinct are all of these personalities? Because that could speak more to the Wheel of Time thing, even maybe than the than the POV thing. They are more distinct than fleshed out, but I didn't feel like they were too shallow. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, it's like that you could tell them apart and then probably subsequent books zoom in on individuals yeah. more than more than others, probably. And they, you know, they each get a moment or two. They each um you can what I, I think I'm thinking about it right now is like I could imagine how some of those characters would would react to situations that didn't even happen in the book. Um, uh-huh. Now that's not necessarily to say that they contain multitudes. Um, <laughs> I I don't think that Breeze is particularly deep as portrayed in the book or Hammond, um, but they are drawn specifically enough that I can imagine them bouncing off each other in a bunch of different scenarios. Um, okay. All right. right. So we're at around the two thirds mark. Yeah. Just, just kind of time in you because sure. you were concerned about, I was this going on forever and ever. So we're, <laughs> so we are at, in front of the big old chalkboard and we're drawing out this plan and then what happens? Yeah. So this is actually even only the first, the first of five like big parts of the book if you do you know like in the like part one chapter one you know part two chapter two whatever um that's not how books work um but by the end of the first part you think you know you think we know by we now, think we know it's just, it's, yeah at the end of the first book you've got the sense of what the plan is and i was actually very taken with and surprised by the fact that it did wind up being a like here is the heist explanation scene that is like charming the characters are riffing with each other the scheme is bring down the final empire now the book has done its job so far to tell you that this empire has been standing for a thousand years the guy who's in charge is a god and Uh thinks himself god he has weathered centuries of possible rebellions thus far he has actually allowed the nobility to uh, engage in their own internecine wars so that they never get powerful enough to defeat him. Um, But Kelsier thinks that maybe we could do it this time. So he's going to recruit an army so that he can start an open rebellion. Now, this could be tough because the Ska have been beaten down for centuries upon centuries and they don't uh, like to rebel. They got to get a bunch of weapons which they're going to do because they have some sort of creature that is posing as a dead nobleman who's going to buy a bunch of weapons. Um, They're going to start a house war 
which mostly means Kel going out at night like Batman and like killing nobles and blaming it on other nobles. Just makes me think of a of a dorm war. It is sort of like a dorm war. Um, but yeah, that's that's another the um beyond like the the fighting and the magical stuff, the um political wheelings and dealings yes. and machinations in in Wheel of Time are a pretty major factor. Not like they start more interesting than they end up. They end up just being a bunch of like people in rooms talking yes, about each other. I but... will, yes. Um, the, the characters in this book use the word politics when they mostly mean gossiping about each other. Uh-huh. Uh, all of the nobles that have like they have balls all the time um, parties and <laughs> most of them involve like swapping <laughs> secrets and then like you know stabbing each other in the back over those secrets but they keep calling it politics but there's not like a legislature there's not campaigning or you know anything like that it's just it's pure it's not the governing part of politics no, it's no, no, the no, no, no. politics part of politics um they have to infiltrate the nobles so that they can learn stuff and the way that they're going to do that is have vin uh portray a noble woman who is new to town and that's a big challenge for her because she's been a street urchin up until the beginning of the book um they have to get the army out of the city so that the rebellion the rebellion can work they're going to steal the lord ruler's atium which is an elusive which is one of the like it's another metal outside of the base eight it's like a metal that makes you like a soup it makes you go super saiyan basically you can like sort of see the future a little bit right, so there are other metals and they just like do stuff yeah dude but, okay weird uh gold lets you see who someone was who you were in the past if you had made different choices um wow. that doesn't hmm. adium I can't, I can't tell how helpful <laughs> that would be actually uh adium lets you see what people are going to do like uh, in the future, in the next couple seconds. So mostly it's like seeing the code in the Matrix. Um, and then there's the elusive 11th medal that Kelsier thinks is, and this is the end of the plan, it's going to help him kill the Lord Ruler. He just doesn't really know what it does. And so are we just meant to accept without question that the Emperor is bad? Like, is the book just kind of setting us up to believe that any entrenched powered structure, especially if you call it an empire is inherently bad and needs to be like defeated or what? So, and we don't have to, at this point we can get away from any sort of plot summary. Cause like it's a, it's the book is a quest to make this come about. Some of it comes about and there's much hardship along the way. And okay. Um, yes, the Lord ruler is a bad dude. But the book is a little bit more interested in saying um, on a micro level, it explores trust and whether or not characters can and should trust one another and how that, I think, ripples upward in society to uh, like a class system where no one like what what is a hierarchy and class system that is just based on nothing but distrust and backstabbing? Um, because even all the way up to the Lord Ruler, and the Lord Ruler is the way he is from uh, an innate sense of like paranoia about betrayal, uh, everyone along the way there is backbiting and people turning on each other. And even in something we haven't even really talked about, the Lord Ruler maintains his control through the ministry, 
which are two groups of people. The obligators, which are just like they're magic dudes with tattoos. I think they run what might as well be the church. And guys called Steel Inquisitors, Andrew. Steel Inquisitors. That's a cool name. <laughs> Steel Inquisitors are dope. There might be like 20 of them in the whole like realm of the book. And they are people who have had huge iron spikes like or steel spikes like driven through their eyes and other parts of their body. And they are like mini bosses. Like they are super powerful Mistborn, basically. I was going to say, it's either, I, I, it sounds like my favorite roller coaster at Cedar Point. <laughs> steel, Inquisitor. steel Inquisitor. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the interesting events that happens towards the end of the book is some Steel Inquisitors turn on the Obligators because they view the Obligators as both inferior to them and as like too petty and eager to fight amongst each other um so at every step of the hierarchy there there are people you know going bad on each other and the lord ruler himself every chapter in this book opens with an italicized like paragraph or two i'm sure this is a device i'm sure you're familiar with uh-huh. and uh, a little ways through the book you come to realize that these are excerpts from a log book that was originally the Lord Ruler's before he became the Lord Ruler. He was the hero of ages, and um, something happened to him. Okay. And they're like, oh, man, the Lord Ruler kept this diary. Why? He seemed like he was such a good guy. Like, what happened to him? So Mm -hmm. the book is constantly reminding you that, like, Maybe he turned. Maybe something made him bad. Maybe someone betrayed him. And I, I, I don't want to go into that specific betrayal because I do think this is one book where like that is actually kind of a neat thing for people to discover. Yeah, and I mean we're not going to touch not, on all the fine stuff. So yeah. Um, what I was most interested about with all of that like early chapter stuff is the way it dovetails with Kelsier's arc throughout the book. Like he is this guy. His motivation for killing the Lord Ruler is not political at first. He was going in there maybe to kill him or at least to stop him or learn something about him. And he was there with his wife. He and his wife got captured. He thinks his wife may have betrayed him. They get sent to these pits where they have to, like, I don't know, like mine uh, magic metal. Um, and oh, that's the that's the pit. Oh, that's the pits. And she is killed. And so you never meet her. So there's a little bit of like the he he has a dead wife trope like motivating him. Sure. Uh-huh. Um which is unfortunate because I think the like and again, this book was written in 2006. It's not, yes, it's a trope that is worth discussing, and, but and I, women didn't exist back in 2006. No, no, so I just you think can just like, forgive all. Of it. I just that was not a trope that was like in common critical discourse. Um, even though it certainly existed in I mean, fiction. It, it, it honestly probably did, and we just weren't aware of That's, it okay. it was 2006. Thank you. Like, that's you, you and I were probably just not aware of that's it. That's a very good point. And I wanted to, like, that's that's part of why I wanted to ask about, about women, because both Game of Thrones and Wheel of Time have different problems with how they, they treat women. Um, for, for Game of Thrones, I, I've, or you can tell because I'm calling it Game of Thrones and not Song of Ice and Fire, <laughs> but obviously I have more context through the TV show, sure, um, which I have been led to believe is more violent 
toward women and, mm. and features more like sexual assault than, than happens in the books, even though it does happen in the books. And in Wheel of Time, there's just a lot of men be like this, but women be like this. And oh, interesting. Even though, like, there are tons of women, like they're ostensibly like strong female characters in, in that, you know, in that mold, but still written by a guy. Like they still, like they cross their arms under their breasts a lot and they're all huffy all the time. Mm. Um, um, like I just, I just, how are, how many women are there and how are they depicted? And like, is there, I don't know. No, that's how, good... how does it happen? So the, f- I, I'm glad you asked that question. And my first bullet point would have been talking about Kelsier's dead, non-existent wife. Cause that is a trope that motivates him. Um, he goes on to be a, a martyr for different reasons, and I, I think that's supposed to show his growth. Um, Vin is not a traditional lady by any means, and that is like she is a street urchin tomboy just trying to stay alive, is not socially conditioned in a lot of like gender specific ways, though some of that is just like maybe passing for a boy helps her stay safe. Um, uh huh. There's a lot of like talk about the threat of her getting sold into prostitution or, you know, people attempting to come at her. Like when she, before she joins uh, Kel's crew, when she's in this like thieving crew, her brother would protect her even though he would beat her himself. Um, But when he's gone, uh, the only thing really keeping her safe is the is the fact that she can use this little bit of magic to help the boss. Um, when she starts pretending to be a noble woman, there's this arc where she is like wearing dresses for the first time and like growing her hair out for the first I mean, time. Are they doing like a Stranger Things? Like, oh, she is she's a beautiful woman after all. Um, there's only a, there's only a couple beats of that because the only people. <laughs> who knew her beforehand are the crew, but none of them save like one really nervous boy who doesn't really do anything are like interested in her. Kel- just, just like wondering the extent to which she is all that. It, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, only she does not go full Rachel Lee cook. Uh, okay. That's your question. <laughs> sure. um, when she gets into noble life, there's a little bit of like mean girl stuff going on. There isn't another like, uh, quote unquote, good guy who is a woman that I can think of. Like there are other women she meets at court that she kind of has to spar with. Um, one of them who ends up being a bad person. Uh, and a lot of what Vin is talking about about being a noble woman. Um, some of it's like explicitly like, oh wow, I have to like I hadn't really thought about how nice it would be to take like good smelling baths and wear nice clothes and stuff. But a lot more of it is really class-based and not being able to believe that, like oscillating between, man, I kind of like this guy that I met and a lend is a whole character we haven't had time to talk about. Um, She's not sure if he's a good guy or a bad guy, but he's a nobleman that she has a thing for and she is projecting her attraction there's like a halo effect where like he must be good because i love him uh-huh. but maybe he's a bad guy who knows um <laughs> and she has to balance that with 
the very real rhetoric coming from her crew that's like, all the noble people are bad. They will kill us be just because we are Ska. They do not care about us at all. Just because we sent you in there to pretend to be a noble person does not mean uh, that they're worth anything. Um, they're sure. They're way worse than you think. So that is way more prevalent than uh like real kind of classic fantasy mis like examples of sexual abuse and assault and things like that there it's like okay. a it is alluded to and talked about um it's not a thing that just like is happening it, as i said it does happen in the prologue to a to a character like off screen effectively sure. um so it's used as a motivating factor but is not part of the plot, which I guess is all you know a thing. Maybe you're never really happy with. Sure. Now that I think about it out loud. Uh, but no, I don't think it. It's not too like oh, and she's wearing a dress and fantasy corsets and stuff. Like it doesn't <laughs> feel like we go into like heavy metal paintings or anything like that. If that makes sense. Okay. Um, I guess is to kind of like bring us home i was talking about how the yeah because we yeah we're yeah. coming in on the end of it so what thoughts i talked about how the book is a book about trust i kind of just mentioned a little bit about the book being about being different people um when vin is in this uh infiltrating the noble world mode she's not sure if she is the street urchin anymore is she actually a noble person is she some sort of mistborn superhero um and then that kind of dovetails with the book being about uh what's up with kelsier and his whole arc is about like at what point are you actually a leader at what point do you become the villain in a, in a way to sound really hackneyed <laughs> sure. um, but kelsier's arc is like it dovetails with the Lord rulers in a way where like he is moving through the people. They are starting to see him as a hero. People are paying the cost for seeing him as a hero. And he has to choose whether or not to continue down that path. Even if his original motives were very personal and narrow minded. Um, and what is he willing to potentially cost people for his own personal revenge and ego? Or has he actually kind of, for lack of a better word, like kind of leveled up into the religious icon that people need. Um, sure. Because there's another part of the Lord Ruler's oppression that has been the extinguishing of every other religion. Um, so this character, Sazid, that I think I taught, or Sazed, I talked about maybe once before, he is a terraceman, um, which is how we learn about Farukami. Uh, and he is like a also like a C3PO character that he can like rattle off information about 600 different religions and he talks and everyone's telling him to shut up all the time. <laughs> yeah, actually. Um and he is a reminder of what has been lost uh, under the Lord Ruler's rule. Um and <laughs> and, and then I just want to say that like I think one of the other reasons that this book probably clicked for and i don't know what the style of action in wheel of time is um but there's a lot of action in this book that is pretty re remarkably successful for what it is because all of the a lot of it is the pushing and pulling of metal objects in midair in a way that feels very anime 
uh, <laughs> as characters. Like, so imagine Andrew that you could okay. that you could push or pull metal. So one way that sure. you might jump is you would throw a coin on the ground and then you push against the coin and that shoots you into the air. Yeah, it's like how Thor doesn't know how to fly. He's just throwing his hammer and then yes. hanging on to it. Exactly. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> is that even how momentum works? Nah. Uh, this book like, actually... Look, if he's strong okay. enough to throw the hammer so hard that he can grab onto it and fly, yeah. wouldn't the act of like grabbing the hammer be enough force to stop the hammer from flying? Maybe he's just like got a light touch on it. And listen, comic book nerds, I don't actually want to know, so don't tweet at me about it. I'm just mad. So one of the things that happens a lot when people are fighting in this book is that they're all throwing coins at each other because everyone knows that there are people out there who can like toss metal. So a lot of people don't carry swords. Uh, a bunch of idiots wear armor and they get tossed around like jerkos in this book. I mean, um, someone have you ever been like pelted with a nickel? Like it's it hurts. Yeah. Well, in this book, people it are strong to get enough coins thrown at you, to yeah. shoot coins like through people's bodies. So I just want to read. Oh, like when you throw a penny off the Empire State yes. Building. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so I want to read three snippets of action from this book that build towards one of the more anime phrases that that happens. So okay, and then and then that's that'll that'll out. take us home. That'll take okay. us home. So this is a sequence from Vin where she is studying with Kel about how to use her allomancy, and that happens a couple times throughout the book. Um, oh, wait, where's where's Keenan in all this? He is probably that you had you said. I don't know which type of allomancy magic he probably. Probably is there one where you eat pizza? What happens if you burn pizza? <laughs> Did Keenan eat a lot of pizza? Uh, no, that was Kel and orange soda. What happens if you burn <laughs> orange soda? Anyway. Yes, and what happens in the book next. <laughs> Vin and Kelsey are training. Um, one of the, they, and they're throwing coins at each other. One of the coins uh -huh. lurched in the air, hanging directly between the two of them. The rest of the coins disappeared into the mists, pushed sideways by conflicting forces. Vin flared her steel as she flew. Uh, and heard her op heard her opponent grunt as he was pushed backward as well. Her opponent hit the wall. Vin slammed into a tree, but she flared pewter and ignored the pain. She used the wood to brace herself, continuing to push. The coin quivered in the air, trapped between the amplified strength of two alamancers. The pressure increased. Vin gritted her teeth, feeling the small aspen bend behind her. Her opponent's pushing was relentless. So you get this, like, classical mechanics, like you're pushing a thing and I'm pushing a thing with force magic that that's hard enough to make interesting visually so it's like good on brando sando for brando making sando. it interesting in the text I yes guess. and then there's one towards the end of the book where he is clearly and I, i'd be interested to know how the other books do this because he is like he must have been racking his brain to think about how pushing metal could be interesting <laughs> Because um, here's one. He's fighting. This is Kelsier fighting a steel inquisitor who has thrown a prison cart at him. With an incredible burst of speed, the inquisitor grabbed the empty box-like prison cell by a pair of bars, then ripped the entire thing free of the cart wheels. The creature spun and hurled the iron cage at Kelsier, who stood only a few feet away. There was no time to dodge. A building stood right behind him. If he pushed himself back, he'd be crushed. The cage crashed toward him, and he jumped, using a steel push to guide his body through the open doorway of the spinning cage. He twisted within the cell, pushing outward in all directions, holding himself 
itself in the metal cage's exact center as it smashed into the wall, then bounced free. So what's that? What's that thing you can do at a at a carnival? The gyromite, the gyromite thing, where you're like that thing where you're like laying on the on the pad and it's just spinning really fast. Yeah, like and you're space held camp. in place by centrifugal force. It's he basically did that with his metal magic, which it's a is bunch of a bunch of magneto men in this it's book. Pretty dope. And then in that same fight, this is where it is just the. He, this is when I was like, oh, this guy's Goku. Um, Kelsier paused a few feet in front of the Inquisitor, fists clenched. He flared his steel in a massive push. Around him, people were thrown back by their metal as they were hit by the awesome invisible wave of power. The square opened up in a small pocket around Kelsier and the Inquisitor. Let's do it then, Kelsier said. And then they fight. Okay. All right. It's pretty good. Um, yeah, I guess thinking about it again from the Wheel of Time perspective, you do have a bunch of magic users just kind of flinging waves of force at each other and if you can if you can consistently find a way to make that read interestingly and like have any tension in it at all yes then yeah good for you um and it helps that like obviously the two characters that he's picked are like two of the most powerful ones and all that kind of stuff um and we haven't really it, it's a hard thing to do in the podcast we but, don't have time to do anything else. No, so but just to say, say what it is and <laughs> that um, the way all of this lore, the way that all of the info about the magic, um, one of the things that probably got him that Wheel of Time deal to answer the first question you asked is how it's layered in throughout the story. It's not all info dumped at top. It's tied to concrete events in the Italian job that they're running. Um <laughs> Where like, oh, you went here, you met this person, so now you need to learn about this. Oh, that person. Oh, oh that person. So I'm just thinking about Italian, <laughs> Italian job. That person did this specific magic. Now you need to learn about it, or or hey. now you have questions about it. Um, oh, hey, and the Nicholas. I don't. Mm, um, it's pretty organic to how the story goes. So, yeah, it's a really cool book. There's lo- there's lots of stuff that we didn't get to talk about, of course. Um, that very easily set up other novels though i was also impressed that he like he didn't next time on like he actually closed the loop on this first on this first story cool yeah early wheel of time books did a better job making them feel like concrete discreet right than than later ones where it was just kind of one big story mess um so yeah if you if you didn't have uh modestly successful very popular with teens book podcast where you also were committed to like reading the rest of the twilight series at some time in the next like year or so <laughs> would you be interested in reading more of brando sando's work i would definitely want to read the first three mistbow books i think okay i am invested enough in vin as a character i think the way he handles his SNES magic system is pretty interesting. <laughs> and he's like opened up one or two other questions. Um, and I didn't feel like I needed to know the backstory of this world to get a cool story out of it. So I hope I have high hopes that at least the initial of the initial Mistborn books that follow this, like don't just dive off the deep end into like, let me explain everything. Um, he seemed pretty reserved about that stuff in this book, sure. Which I okay. which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, folks who have read the rest of these books um, and want to tell me that I got something wrong, 
or want to tell me that in the later books he reveals a whole magic system based on types of pizza, um, please tell me how it works. Email me uh, directly at overduepod at gmail.com or tweet at us, Facebook us with your tips for burning pewter in your stomach. Um, That's it. I said the name. When you're you're burning pewter, just make sure you put down towels under all the doors so none of the smoke gets out and your mom can't see. If you're burning pewter, you have to tell me. Um, that's at overdue pod at both of those services. Thanks uh, to folks reaching out this week: Graham, Melissa, Rebecca, Steve, K, J, Glenn, K W, Haley, Kathleen, Gloria, Scott, and many more. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? I'm fading. Um, OverduePodcast.com is our internet website. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and RSS. All feeds you can use to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they come out on Mondays or when we release bonus episodes whenever. Um, we also have a link up there to HeadGum, our podcast network. Thanks, as always, to them and to our Patreon project. That's patreon.com slash pod. Go there, give us money, get stuff. That's the deal. Um, uh, like we said at the top of the show, um, this is the last podcast we're going to release before we do our live show in Philly. Again, that's uh, bit.ly slash overdue 2018, June 23rd, one uh, thirty p.m. at the Philly Improv Theater. Uh, Craig's talking about Redwall. It's going to be real fun. And we hope to see you there. Andrew, uh, what are the, you reading for that? next week? I'm reading The Book of Unknown Americans by Christina Henriquez. Excellent. Look forward to hearing about it after I read I look, about mice. Look forward to knowing some of those Americans. That's it. That's the show. That's it. That's the podcast, everybody. All right. Uh, everyone, I don't know, go take some cold medicine, which is what I'm going to do, and try to be happy. <laughs> That was a HeadGum Podcast.